Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Are We There Yet? The Project Edward 2022 podcast series. My name is James Luckhurst and this week we confront the alarming facts and figures connected with drug driving in the workplace. Helping us do this are former collision investigator and fleet risk prevention specialist Andrew Drury, DTEC International Managing Director Ian Lewin, and Leslie O'Brien, OBE, Managing Director of Freightlink Europe. We'll leap into that conversation in just a moment, but there's another topic to consider this week, and that's the risks to road safety by some of the fly-on-the-wall cop shows many of us probably enjoy. But according to one retired traffic cop, they appear to show such a raft of inappropriate outcomes and lenient sentences for people we've watched driving dangerously, recklessly, or at least without any thought for the safety of others on the road about them. But that's for later. Right now, it's time to get serious about tackling employee drug driving. Research from the UCAT network of rehabilitation centres suggested that substance abuse contributes to 40% of workplace accidents, while discussions at a recent HSE EU Congress suggested that the estimated annual cost of drug and alcohol misuse to UK businesses is around £36 billion. Driving under the influence of drink or drugs significantly increases the risk of death or serious injury. So let's first of all go to the sharp end and meet a fleet boss with a reputation for telling it like it is, putting safety first and championing the benefits of a diverse and inclusive workforce within the transport industry, for which he was awarded an OBE in 2020. I'm Leslie O'Brien and I'm Managing Director at Freightlink Europe, where a um, haulage company based in Halifax, West Yorkshire. What are you doing as a haulier to tackle drug driving within your organisation and, and what support is there for you to do that? We uh, have we took a long time choosing the, the right supplier to support us on our, on our journey. And that was a question of not only having drugs and alcohol testing kit, but one that could actually uh, help us if we had to use it and would be a legally defensible um, kit in, in the court. So we spent a lot of time doing that. Then we reviewed our policies and procedures because although we had policies and procedures in place, we actually weren't um, implementing them. And so then we went and we launched it throughout uh, our team and told them what we what we were going to do. I have to say that at the time, we didn't have any support from any of the trade bodies, but it was something that I felt that we morally had to do. And that stemmed from me going to a meeting. It was a meeting on maintenance. At the end of the meeting, one of the people there said the the issue isn't really the equipment. What we should be looking at alongside is those driving the, the equipment and told a really frightening story of doing a drugs test and a third of the drivers found to be impaired. And then someone else came forward and told a similar story. And I thought, oh, my goodness, uh, this is something I absolutely need to look at. And, and that was how the, the Freightlink Europe journey journey started. Let's talk about the team, the, the, the people who work for you and, and with you. 
how much buy-in, how much support have you received for, for, for that kind of new policy and, and what you've tried to do? It, it's absolutely essential to, to get buy-in and to create a real culture around safety, which includes not only the flea and not only the kind of the time driving behind the wheel, but the fitness to drive. So we started by holding a meeting everybody present at that meeting and discussed that we were actually going to start uh, implementing the drugs and alcohol policy and we were going to start random drugs testing and we appreciated that this could be could be quite frightening so we gave a month a month's grace for people to come forward and ask questions or for them to come forward and say hey listen I need help. And it was quite a frightening time for me because obviously I'd heard all these other stories. And in fact, we had two resignations. One of them, obviously, it could have just, the person could have resigned anyway. But the other one actually came forward and said, I have a drugs problem. I'm going to resign. I've had it for some time. And I know I cannot overcome this. And of course, the frightening thing for me was if I had done drugs and alcohol testing at the start of employment, this would have come to light. And so that's why we do drug and alcohol testing at the start of, of employment. So it's a culture that we've we, we've started. Everybody knows that we're going to do random drug and alcohol testing. Uh, some companies choose to say we will test 20 25 percent of our workforce my aim is that we we test all the workforce including office staff on an annual basis it's, it's a very honest presentation that you're you're sharing with us to what extent do you think you are sticking your head above the parapet in you know in an industry where perhaps it's just brushed to one side or the problem is ignored you absolutely have to lift your head above the the parapet um, because I'm very much risk averse. Um, I will often ask myself the question, what if, what if, and know that there will always be a positive outcome. I'll get another job. I won't be homeless. But what if, if there was an incident on the road and one of my drivers had killed someone? That what if, there's no good outcome. And so we absolutely need to take steps. And every company has an obligation under Health and Safety at Work to assess the hazard, to assess the risk, to assess the likelihood. This is a great risk. This is a great likelihood. And it will impact the driver, the company, the directors for the rest of their lives. So this absolutely is, is not something that we can ignore. Leslie O'Brien with some sobering points for further reflection. Well, joining me now are two professionals keen to do just that. I'm Andrew Drury, I'm Managing Director at uh, Road Safety Smart, I'm mainly looking at collision investigation and a risk consultancy for fleet operators in particular. Ian Lewin, I'm the Managing Director of DTEC International and we supply all the police forces in England and Wales with roadside drug screening as well as uh, workplace business working with PLCs through to small, medium-sized businesses. 
Well, you're both very welcome. Let me start with a question to Ian Lewin. Ian, why is drug driving such a problem in society? And also give us perhaps a specific look at the extent of the problem in the workplace. If I start with um, an interesting statistic that I picked up from the local newspaper here on the Fylde, just last weekend alone we had 40 drink and drug uh, arrests um, and that's from one tiny part of Lancashire. Another interesting one I picked up last week was uh, Pembrokeshire, that uh, tiny rural peninsula at the bottom left-hand side of Wales. In July alone, they had 23 drug arrests and 10 drink drive arrests. So those are the sort of magnitudes of uh, drink and drug driving that we're seeing in our, in our own communi- communities. The underlying issue, in, in my opinion, is the Home Office and the DFT started too late. You know, we were roadside testing in Australia, in France, in Belgium, in in 10 other countries, um, some 10 years before England and Wales. So as drugs took off, drug consumption took off in general society, people then went out and drove, principally because they perceived that they wouldn't be caught. They were right. Well, until 2015, when we introduced the new legislation. And in that first year, we caught 12,000 people drug driving. So, um, and here's the the other thing to, to, to make you think. The Department for Transport official figures for road traffic collisions with fatalities was around 200 for drink drive, but they, they, their statement was 220 for drug drive and likely much higher. So um, if they were measuring properly, I think they would be able to point out exactly why drug driving is prolific and worse than drink driving. Let's turn our attention then to specifically the issue of driving for work. Andrew Drury, this is an area in that where you're an expert. So... Who's responsible when it comes to work-related driving? Is it me as the employee, or is it my employer, or is it both of us? It's a really, really good question, and I think it's one that a lot of people, particularly for those who drive their own vehicles for work, um, the employees and the employers do have a a misconception or a grey area. It's both people's, both both parties' responsibility. Simple as the employer, the employee has to ensure that they are fit to drive before they get behind the wheel and the employer under health and safety legislation has to ensure that the employee is fit to undertake their duties whilst they're at work. So I think this is where going back to some of the things Ian's raised that private life unfortunately does come into the workplace and it's a very difficult area for people to tackle Um, and that responsibility of and the health and safety executive have made it quite clear that those people driving for work using their own vehicles fall under the same legislation as those people driving company vehicles so they should be managed in exactly the same way so the simple answer is to your question both parties are as responsible as each other and i as an employee i work hard all week what i do with my saturday evening is my business but evidence of my activities on saturday evening 
could show up on Monday morning. I think you you see where I'm taking this. I, I, I do. I do. And I think, again, with lockdown and, and that people's attitudes and, and regimes have changed considerably because I think Ian's probably the only one in the office today. But as you say, James, you and I are at home. We could be having a nice glass of wine while we're having this conversation on drink and drugs. People just do not know. Uh, and if your camera's off, people do not know. So I think it's it's one of those things that, how you do in your private life, is it in, if it affects your ability to do your job properly the following day or on the day, then it is the employer's risk as well. Uh, and that has to be managed. Ian Lewin, is industry doing enough uh, with this problem? Uh, and if not, are there opportunities where industry can do more, perhaps with the right partners? I think there's the first answer is no, they're not doing enough. The second answer is yes, there are tremendous opportunities. If you if you consider one of our longest standing customers, um, 22, 23 years now, they wouldn't be paying me the money and having the, their management time taken up in doing the education and the screening if it didn't give them a payback. So commercially, just being very brutal about that word, is we can save them money because there are an awful lot of, fewer of uh, what we call unexplained incidents. And you might sort of consider this as a knocking the wing mirror off a bus, but the, the, the consequences of that financially build up with that bus down for a day, having to put a separate bus out on that route um, finding and buying a new mirror, all of these things, and then the management time taken to, to find out why it happened. We reduce the occurrences of those, and that pays for our service. However, the benefit to the customer is that we're also likely to catch and allow them to remove any drug users that, that may cause a, a much more severe road traffic collision with a fatality. Now, we want that to happen before the, the, the event, whereas a policeman's likely to be involved during or after the event. So, um, yes, there's an awful lot of things that can be done. Um, I, I, I see daily from our 300 customers, I see daily the confirmation system that we use which is um, after they've been screened and they they fail the screening they're still innocent until proven guilty so at that point we need the confirmation sample those samples go through the lab and come back to me and that's when I see the cannabis I see the cocaine uh, I see the codeine and, and some ridiculous levels and this is happening while they're at work they must have consumed these drugs whilst at work some of some of them, yes, we can see what they what they were playing with, what they were taking the night before, but that has to be where they have to man up and say, you know, if, if I want to be a drug taker, then I shouldn't be a bus driver, I shouldn't be driving an HGV. Those are the sort of things that that that, that should be happening. But because they're a drug taker, they will be convinced that they that is the right thing to be doing, um, and there's no problem with it, and so they do carry on. Now, this is where a company needs to pick up on their responsibility and look out for those not so innocent majority, uh, minority 
and, and actually highlight this. What they then do is up to the company, but at least they will have, have done that. And, and to protect themselves, if it was ever to go to a corporate manslaughter or if HSE ever got out and did anything and audited anybody, they, they might see um, that, that a policy doesn't, isn't sufficient. You have to be doing some testing. You have to create, you have to educate, and then you have to create the deterrent, and then you have to detect. So that's the sort of relationship we have with our customers. Um, and, and, and from that, they benefit commercially. Um, they, they see their costs reduce and they s feel safer because they are actually going to reduce any incidents. Andrew Drury, we therefore need to go beyond policy, according to Ian. Can you perhaps give some examples of where you have gone beyond policy and achieved a good buy-in from a client? That is a really, really difficult question because Ian's highlighted a number of instances or examples there why it, you should do it, but also why a lot of people don't do it. And I think if people have, if people have the right attitude from the beginning and it's driven from the top down, then it's easier to implement right across the company. From my perspective of collision investigations, a lot of change only happens, as Ian said, when the police get involved and it's, it, the incident's happened or something has caused something to happen to, to have their involvement. That is something that is often the trigger to change. And it is sometimes too late. I think it comes down to the fact that we probably have to consider driving as being the most dangerous activity any of us will ever do. Whether it's in the workplace or, or on, our, on our daily daily lives, that is the misconception or the big gray area. People believe working on the railways is more dangerous than driving. They will have a different policy within that group. Nobody will go onto the railway line without being drug or alcohol tested, but they'll be able to drive the vehicle afterwards and not be tested for, for drink or drugs. I think there's a, there's different aspects of how we view safety. And I think driving is not viewed as really a, a safety critical role for most employers. Those who see it as a safety critical role have really great processes in place, have the audit trails in place, have the systems in place, have collision investigators in place or incident investigators in place when something happens. Those who don't view it as a safety critical role think, well, everybody's, all my guys have got a driving license, all my guys and girls have got a driving license, so they must be good at driving and it's their responsibility to make sure they're fit to drive. So these are the things I pick up in investigations and make formulate part of my recommendations going forward to point people in the direction of, of DTEC because they provide the education, they provide the solution, they provide the support and I think that is the thing that is missing here for most people. If you don't understand it and you're not educated about the problems and the subject, it's very difficult to have really good, robust, effective policies and processes in place. Well, look, we have a couple of minutes left. Let's just remind ourselves the Project Edward theme for 2022 is changing minds, changing behaviour. What needs to happen in this arena of drug driving and impairment and safety that's going to make a difference? And uh, you've got one minute. Start with you, please, Andrew. 
a minute. My, 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 can I fill a minute in? Um, I think change, that is, that is the, the one word I think is, is perfect for this ending of this session. And a, an employee can say, ask themselves each day, can I change, do I need to change in what I do over the weekend before I get into the car on a Monday or the vehicle on a Monday? if they know they may be under the influence and impaired. And an employer needs to ask, do they need to change to identify, to look at themselves and are, to identify, are they doing enough to identify the problem? Are they doing enough to educate? And are they doing enough to support those who may fail a test at work, but there is still, once they know, they have to assist and have to support. So do we need to change in those certain aspects? That's what I'd say. Thanks, Andrew Drury. Um, Ian Lewin, uh, we'll give the last word to you. You have one minute to reflect on changing minds, changing behaviour, and and particularly how it applies in your sector. I'm going to pick up on the word change and try and point out why it is necessary for people and for companies to change and it's really just a couple of statistics uh happens to be from merseyside and their police in 2020 made uh over 2000 drug drive arrests 50 percent of that figure were at work in the company vehicle or drove for work. That was part of their role at work. Uh, this last this last year in 2021, that was over 35% because I know they were focused on other things. Um, but just that shocking statistic, I hope does get the message across. There is need, there is a necessity to change. Even if it's just doing the analysis, have a look-see, talk to, Talk to Andrew, talk to myself, and we'll we'll hopefully sort out any issues and help you get that message of change, need to change through to your employees, through to your management, and through to your board directors. Ian Lewin from DTEC International. We also heard from Andrew Drury from Road Safety Smart. Now, the chances are you'll agree that traffic enforcement and associated penalties are essential in any successful road safety strategy. But if you've ever watched one of those fly-on-the-wall shows profiling roads policing officers at work, you may be left scratching your head at the soft sentences that follow a protracted pursuit or some other incident of high-risk driving. This is something that's come to our attention from Martin Cook, a former Rhodes policing officer from Sussex, who says he's fed up of watching clip after clip of truly awful driving, only to hear at the end of a show that no action was taken or that a driver received the softest of sentences. Martin's keen to state that he has nothing but the greatest respect for the officers we meet on these shows, but he questions the value of this kind of TV as his concern is that it sends the wrong message to people who may well think they can drive as they like without really needing to worry about the consequences. This is just an observer watching some of the programmes that are on uh, TV now, particularly the reality uh, traffic cops, police interceptors, ones like that, um, which uh, I do find a bit fascinating just to see the procedures they use. Um, 
And although I have opinions about various aspects, it's mainly the uh, the summary um, that comes either at the end or in between, where uh, the sentences or, or the disposal of the case is given, uh, and it's that that worries me. Um, uh, I just feel that uh, uh, to a lot of people it would seem some offenders are, are literally getting away with things. Is that because of failings in the police? Is it failings in the judiciary? Or, or do we just accept that even though there are severe sentences possible, we just choose not to use them because we're all too kind, even even the JPs among us. It's a while since I've been sort of um, active in things. It's certainly not a, cr a criticism of the professionalism of the police. Um, in fact, there, there have been occasions when uh, I've actually wanted to contact individual officers just to say how proud I am of them. Uh, I think uh, the way they handle themselves uh, these days is, is very good. So it's not that. Um, we're talking about sentencing and, and I don't know um, what constraints the courts are under uh, or CPS uh, in their prosecution policies. You know, I really don't know enough about that these days. But it just does surprise me um, at the leniency of some of the sentencing that's given for what are truly diabolical offences that are filmed. And you get occasions where you've had a long-running incident um, that finishes with with the, uh, someone then saying no further action was taken, which is just incredible. Might that be because during that incident, actually, no one else was hurt, and you know, there were no consequences from from the driver's actions? Does that count? Um, that that may be, but certainly, uh, you know, I've. I've just thinking of one particular one I watched um, where the, the driver has been breaking so many laws that you can't believe that, that there was nothing that, uh, that he was reported for or charged with. So what do you think we should do then, Martin? Uh, the, the, the reason I wanted to, to raise this was to just stimulate some thought, um, particularly with uh, decision makers and chiefs constables um, as to uh, is there any editorial control over um, what goes out on these programs one of the things I've been conscious of is is where uh, on on these instances it finishes with a comment such as uh, this case is still being investigated it leaves it very much uh, open to people's interpretation so they don't necessarily know that it was a lenient sentence. Um, what could be added then are details of what the maximum sentence could be. But it's just that, it's just that ending of it that I think could be changed if, as I say, the decision makers could, could have some control over what goes out. Now I appreciate you've been out of the job for, for some years but think back to the years when you were a traffic patrol officer. What were your relations like with the judiciary? Did you get magistrates kind of riding along out with you to, to see what you had to deal with and to understand the dangers? Yes, we did on occasions. Um, but even then, even then, I know there were concerns, particularly over um, decisions made by CPS.
and at court, um, which were very frustrating on occasions. Well, look, we have Chief Constable Jo Shiner joining our show, and we will put your concerns to her. Meanwhile, are you going to continue watching traffic cops and police interceptors with that kind of morbid fascination we all have because we like seeing other people being told off? Um, I, I, yes, I, I will. I'll, I'll watch them on occasions because uh, it is interesting to see what goes on and the changes that have happened over the years since I was uh, in the job. So, yes, I probably will. That was Martin Cook, and we'll be putting Martin's concerns to CC Joe Shiner, the NPCC Roads Policing Lead, when we talk to her in an episode to be published on the 16th of September. But that's everything from us this week. The drug driving conversation was certainly thought-provoking, as we'll be planning to explore this topic much more during our week of action in September. We're back next week, of course, so do join us on Are We There Yet? The Project Edward podcast. Do subscribe and do tell your friends to tune in as well. But for now, from me, James Larkhurst, it's goodbye and thanks for listening.